Well, good morning. It's good to see you. I'm glad to be here with you and uh, continue our um, series in the fall on rethinking the church, thinking about what does it mean to be the body of Christ. And um, yeah, so this morning we're going to talk about polity. Polity. So polity is just a word for the structure of the church. Um, And we're going to think about how is it that the Bible tells us that we ought to organize ourselves as a church. So we've, we've talked for the last couple of weeks about uh, who the church is and, and what makes a church a church. Things like the preaching of the word and the holiness of God's people and the unity that they have and the covenants that they make with one another. But what does that look like in a structural, organizational way? Is there uh, a structure? I mean, you think about Acts chapter 2, and it, and it seems like Christians just gathered together in homes, they met together and they ate together, they read the scriptures together, they heard from the apostles together, they enjoyed fellowship, they enjoyed the Lord's Supper. It doesn't really look like there's a lot of organization going on because that was the the beginning of the church, the birth of the church. But throughout history, we've seen the development of of what I would say are three main kinds of structures. And we're going to talk through them very quickly and then I want to hone in on what we believe is Lakeview Baptist Church, to be the the most biblical structure. Before we go any further, though, we need to say that there is no slam-dunk argument. There is no super clear verse that says, you have to have your church like this with a list of things. So here's what that means. You may have a friend who goes to a Methodist church, and they have a very different church structure. You have a friend who goes to a, a Presbyterian church, or an Anglican church, or an Episcopal church. And they have a very, very different church structure. But, but we totally believe that God is able to use those churches, to even bless those churches, even though we would disagree on how they're structured. Does that make sense? So this is, this is not like a, a thing for which if you disagree, you're not a Christian. We just probably wouldn't be members of the same church. All right? So let's, let's think about these three things together. The first, the first kind of structure is called Episcopalianism. So you have fun trying to figure out how to spell that. Uh, Episcopalianism, and, and this is what we see really from the first, second, the second century through the Reformation. If you think about the Roman Catholic Church, they have an Episcopal structure. Their polity, their structure is Episcopal in nature. What that means is there is a difference between the clergy, who are the people who work in the church, the ministers of the church, the bishops of the church, and the laity, which would be all of you, the members of the church. There is a divide between the clergy and the laity. So when we think about the Roman Catholic Church, or we think about Anglican churches, Episcopal churches, even Methodist churches, they all share this kind of structure. And in that structure, there are three offices for the church. There are pastors, there are deacons, and there are bishops. And bishops have a kind of authority over the churches. So you think about our church, the, the people with the, the kind of leadership authority in our church are the pastors, but the pastor of First Baptist Church Opelika doesn't come to Lakeview and say, you need to do things this way. In an Episcopal church structure, there is someone called a bishop who is able to go to all of the churches in his region and have ecclesial or biblical authority over those churches. He, he has an office that they find in Scripture uh, that continues to have authority over regions of churches. And like I said, this was the dominant practice until the Reformation. But one of the things that happened during the Reformation, maybe you think about Martin Luther and nailing the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. 
or you think about John Calvin or, or Ulrich Zwingli kind of changing their cities in the Protestant Reformation. But one of the things that happened in the Reformation that we don't need to forget is the work of translation and the work of printing. So I think it's fascinating, historically speaking, that when the Bible begins to be put in the hands of the Christians, when you now have a Bible that you can read in your own language, that you can interpret yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit, very, very quickly, the church begins to move away from this Episcopal form of government, this idea that there's a divide between the clergy and the laity. So we have two different ways of looking at it from the Reformation. We have Presbyterianism and Congregationalism. Well, you know that we're not Presbyterian, so we're probably going to be in the Congregationalist camp. We'll get to there in a second. But for uh, very quickly, the Presbyterian version of government uh, has that there are two offices. There is the pastor and the deacon. And within the role of pastor or elder, there are two kinds of elders. They have what's called teaching elders and ruling elders. So there are some pastors, there are some, and I'm using those words interchangeably, right? Pastor, elder, bishop, or pastor, elder, overseer. Those are all saying the same thing. There are some in the Presbyterian church teaching pastors or teaching elders. Their primary responsibility is to teach, to, to preach the word. And there are other elders called ruling elders. Their primary responsibility is to rule, to govern, to, to lead the church through these ruling actions. Elders rule and not the congregation. So at the end of the day, who has the biblical authority to rule in that church in this world? The elders do. And these churches are connected in a structure called presbyteries and synods and sessions. There are, there's a hierarchy of how these churches are put together. So your church is not alone. Your church is not, does not have authority over itself completely. There are other churches in your area, in your session, in your presbytery, that are able to speak into the life of your church. So it's kind of like Episcopalian government, but not nearly as much of a divide. Then we have congregationalism. That's where we are. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. This is local church autonomy. So Lakeview Baptist Church makes the decisions for Lakeview Baptist Church. There's no other church in the country. There's no denominational structure that mandates to us with any kind of biblical authority that we have to do certain things. No authority is above the authority of the local church. And we have two offices as the church. We have pastors and deacons. You probably know, uh, you, obviously you know at least some of the pastors because I'm one of your pastors. Uh, but you probably know some of the deacons. You, you probably know some of the men who lead through service in our church. And pastors lead, but they do not rule. That's a very key distinction. That our church as a congregationalist church rules by the congregation. You as the members of the church are the ruling party in our church. So the elders, the pastors can give to you things so think a good example is like the church budget, right? At the end of the year, the pastors and the deacons come before you and say, hey, the pastors have signed off on this. The deacons have signed off on this. We think this is a good idea. This is how much money we should spend for 2021. But we don't bring that to you and say, this is what we're doing. No, we bring that to you and say, this is for you to vote on. If you approve it, this is what we'll do. If you reject it, then we'll do something else. You have the final say as the church. You have the final say as the congregation. Now, there's a lot more we could go in on, but I want to just kind of harp on three points this morning as we think about why congregationalism 
why our church functions in a way that I think is most biblical, all right? So uh, we're going to say, first of all, that Christ is the head and the mediator of the church. Christ, that Jesus alone is the true head and the true mediator of the church. So there's a man named Stephen Wellam, a professor at Southern Seminary, and he writes, in the New Covenant, which is where we are, praise God, there is a direct relationship between Christ and his people so that the entire congregation has immediate access to God. God's grace and presence are not mediated through various leaders to the people. The latter may be true of the Old Covenant, but it is not true of New Covenant realities. So in other words, what what Wellam is saying to you and me is that because you are a Christian, because you are a member of the New Covenant, you have direct access to God. You can pray to the Lord, you can seek his face, you can hear him speak in the word. You have direct access, a direct line. There's no chain of command that you have to go through to get to God's presence. I am not your priest in the sense that I am not your mediator. You don't have to get to God through me. I saw this beautifully laid out when I was in Uganda. There's a, a large Catholic presence there, so they have pre- Catholics have priests, and priests are the ones through whom you get to God. They are mediators for you. And uh, the guy that I was with, um, Chris Mobs, is a youth parent. You, you know Chase, and um, and so we're we're on this on this hill talking to these military men about the gospel. And they had heard some things about the gospel before because there was a Catholic priest who had said some things to them before. And Chris just laid out the gospel and said, and said, guys, you can know Christ today. You can turn from your sins and place your faith in Christ. And then that was basically, that was basically the end of his, his, his presentation. And one of the men asked him, aren't you going to lead us in a prayer? And Chris responded by saying, you don't need me to pray to God. You don't need me to talk to God. I'm not your priest. We believe that you have direct access to God. If you go to him through faith, that you don't need a priest. And I just thought that was so beautiful that he understood that these men, all they had known about the gospel is that I have to get through this other guy to get to God. No, we believe that Christ is the head of the church. He's the mediator of the church. We all have a direct line to God's presence. And the authority of the church leadership is not an intrinsic authority. So you and I don't have authority just because we are who we are. No, that authority is given to us. Pastors specifically are not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Pastors don't just make up what ought to be taught or practiced. The authority of pastors is derived from the authority of Scripture. So, so here's what that means. If, if I am living my life in a way or, or my teaching is out of line with Scriptures, then I do not have any authority. So if I tell you to go do something that you know to be wrong, I cannot appeal to my authority as a pastor. You may think, well, duh, like I wouldn't, if I told you, hey, go rob that store, I'm your pastor. And you may think that's insane, but, but I'm telling you, all throughout our culture, there are people who will abuse their authority as, as spiritual leaders to get people to do unbelievable things. 
and they feel pressure because they feel as though somebody who is in spiritual authority over them is calling them to do those things, whether that's abuse, covering up abuse, covering up sin, covering up mismanagement of money, whatever it is. The, 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 the pastor does not have biblical authority when he is out of step with the gospel, when he's out of step with Scripture. So what this means is that my office as an elder does not give me the right to teach you or require of you anything that I want. That's the check and balance of authority here. I don't get to do whatever I want to do, and I don't get to tell you to do whatever I want you to do. Your obedience to my teaching is only required insofar as it aligns with the authority of Scripture. So here's what that also means. It means that if I teach something that you don't like, well, we need to figure out if it's biblical or not. Say, I don't want to, you're, you're hearing me teach something about loving your neighbor, and you're like, I don't want to do that. I don't feel like loving the person who isn't like me, or I don't feel like being a, a good neighbor to the person who's been mean to me before. I don't want to do that. Well, you don't have any authority to stand on there because that's biblical. And your problem isn't with my teaching. Your problem isn't with me. Your problem is with the Bible. So you see how important it is that we understand that our ultimate authority is derived not from who I am as a pastor, not even who you are as a member of the congregation, but through Scripture. And we see this in 1 Peter chapter 5. So let's turn there. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to see that Jesus, He is the one that we have access to. He is our mediator. He is our leader. We follow Him together. But Peter gives us this kind of structure that Elders are leading the congregation. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it just says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder or pastor, it's the same word, same meaning, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So just pause there. Peter is telling the pastors, the elders, to lead and shepherd the church in a way that is aligned with God, not with what you feel like is good. Shepherd the flock, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain. So you don't do this to make money or, or notoriety or influence, but with eagerness. You don't domineer over those in your charge but you're an example to the flock. So if I'm living a life that is completely out of step with the gospel, don't listen to me. If you go somewhere and you see a pastor who's living their lives out of step with the gospel, they've given up their authority. But look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Peter is saying, hey, elders, shepherd the flock of God, but you have a shepherd too. And when that chief shepherd appears, he will reward you for your faithfulness. So, so here's the point. You and I all, pastors, congregation, we are all a part of the flock. We all have one chief shepherd. We all have access to him. This is huge because there are some who try to practice church leadership, not with humility, not with biblical faithfulness, not with modeling a, a, a way of, of Christ-like influence. No, they wield a kind of unbiblical authority living as though they were a king. And we've, we've seen, I'm sure you could think about prosperity preachers in our culture who, 
I think the one said, and something, this is not a direct quote, but it's a pretty close one. If God wants me to do ministry in a $65 million jet, then you will give me that money so that I can do that to the glory of God. Another one said that they have to fly in private jets because there are demons in coach on other planes. So they can't go there. It's just a tube full of demons is what that guy said. No, we don't live that way. That's not pastoral. That's not biblical authority. That's usurping God's authority and ruling as a king. We are all serving under Jesus. He is our chief shepherd and we are all his sheep. Some of us have different roles and responsibilities. So some of us uh, have roles as members, as volunteers, as, as lay leaders. And some of us have responsibilities as, as pastors or as deacons. But the big idea is that we all follow Jesus together. We all enjoy his presence by the Holy Spirit. You don't need a pastor to get to God. You don't need a priest to get access to God. Christ is the head and mediator of the church. You can go directly to him. He is our authority. All right, number two. Number two, Christ is the head and the, author- and the mediator, but number two, the local church is autonomous. I mentioned this a couple of minutes ago, that the local church is autonomous. So we've just seen that individual members of a church are directly connected to the Lord. So if we zoom out just a little bit, what we'll find is that the church, a local church, is itself directly accountable to God. It's not a region of churches. It's not a denomination. It's this body that meets in this place. That is who God sees as a local church church, and that is to whom God will hold accountable. We believe that there's no hierarchy above a local church that has spiritual authority within the church. God gives a local church pastors who lead and guide the church as under shepherds. We just saw that in 1 Peter 5. The point is we do not have a body outside of our church that has biblical authority over us. So who has ultimate authority? At the end of the day for Lakeview Baptist Church, Jesus Christ and that local church. This may seem like a no-brainer to you because this is, for many of you, all that you have known, right? You've maybe raised in Lakeview or you've been a part of Baptist churches or maybe as long as you've been thinking about how a church is structured, this is all you know. So you may think this is a no-brainer. But other churches believe that there's a greater system of authority above their local church. We've talked about that. Anglican churches, Methodist churches, Presbyterian churches. And we see in, in Galatians, we won't turn there, but in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, It's the section where Paul is saying, I am astonished that you're so quickly turning from him who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. And and Paul is saying to to the churches in Galatia, these local bodies of believers, do not recognize anyone with any kind of authority if the gospel that they are proclaiming is false. So nobody can, because here's what's happened. And you were with us when we were in the summer going through Galatians. What happened in Galatians chapter 1? Paul references these false teachers who came from Jerusalem. Well, if you're thinking about a place that has spiritual authority and power in the first century church, Jerusalem is going to be near the top, right? Because that's where the apostles are. That's where Peter and James and John and Andrew and these men are. And so if, if we had somebody come from, hey, uh, somebody's coming from Peter's church to come tell us how to do some things, we would go, oh man, okay. Like they have it together, obviously. Uh, Peter was with Jesus, right? Or, hey, John has sent someone from him to you. Listen to him. You're like, okay, yeah. Like this guy's got some, some, some street cred. He, he knows John, the beloved disciple. He knows the one that Jesus loved. 
But what Paul is saying here in Galatians 1 is that, look, it doesn't matter where somebody comes from. They don't have any kind of special authority over you. Paul is telling these churches that there isn't any authority above their local church. So the process of recognizing gospel authority is not something for somebody to do out there. It's for us to do here. There's another, there's a couple more reasons why the local church is autonomous, why that makes sense. The process of church discipline for a believer ends in Matthew chapter 18 with, if they do not listen to you and a couple of your friends, tell it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, then let him be to you as a tax collector and a Gentile. Basically what he's saying is, if the church does not recognize the repentance of this brother, then the church decides to not see him as a brother anymore. That's the church's responsibility, this local congregation's responsibility. A local church is not under any obligation to defer that judgment to someone or some other body. The primary leadership body for the church are pastors. They lead, but they don't rule. The church does this. The majority of New Testament epistles are written to who? They're written to churches. So Paul writes to the church at Philippi, to the church in Corinth, to the church that meets in Thessalonica, or the churches in Galatia. They're not mainly written to church officers like Timothy or Titus, although that does exist. The, the vast majority of the letters are written to churches, and they are never written to a larger organization than, than a church. It's not like the Southern Jerusalem denomination. Please listen to what I have to say. No, it's to the churches that meet in Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are series of letters addressed to who? Specific local churches. The church in Thyatira, the church in Pergamum, the church in Laodicea. It's local churches, not their leaders, and not some bigger structure. Here's the point for this point. You and I ought to work together as the church. The responsibility to lead and to rule and to govern and to flourish as God's people rests with us, not with other people out there, but with us in here. It's good that we band together as a convention of churches and associate with other churches. So it's good that we have partnerships and we have friendships and we have deep-seated alliance with with other churches that are like-minded like us. I mean, we're part of a denomination called the Southern Baptist Convention. And every word there is is important, that the idea that we are a convention of churches, that you and I have voluntarily said, we will work together. It's a wonderful partnership. The SBC has led to things like six fantastic Southern Baptist seminaries that teach the full counsel of God's word. It's led to things like Lifeway, where uh, Christian content and curriculum and Bibles have gone all over the world. It's led to things like the IMB, the International Mission Board, where thousands of missionaries have gone out to the ends of the earth to to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. It's led to the North American Mission Board, where churches have been planted by church planters through NAM all over North America. Here's the deal. The Great Commission was not given to the IMB. It wasn't given to the North American Mission Board. The the task to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints wasn't given to Southeastern Seminary. It was given to the church. It was given to local congregations that meet as God's people. These things were given to the church, visibly expressed in local congregations. 
Now, we'll speak a little bit more in a couple of weeks on elders in particular. But for now, I hope that we see that elders are also a member of the church who just have been given a leadership role to love and to lead, to encourage, to preach, to pray for the congregation. They're pastors, they're shepherds, but their authority is affirmed by the rule of the congregation. Congregational churches like ours are not ruled by the pastors, they're ruled by the congregation. And that leads us to our last point this morning. Members are the ruling body of the church. So in a congregational church, we believe that Christ is the ultimate head and the ultimate mediator of our church, that we believe local churches are autonomous. We make our own decisions. And then number three, members are the ruling body of the church. We needed those first two points to make this make sense. Let's think about courts. All right, maybe some of you have been thinking about the Supreme Court because of some pretty bombshell news that happened in the last couple of days. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the Supreme Court justices, passed away from complications with cancer. She was 87, I believe. A giant, a giant in American history. And now there's an open spot on the most important and most powerful court in our country. But that's not the only court we have, right? I mean, in order to get to the Supreme Court, you have to go through circuit courts and appellate courts and district courts, maybe even a local, like a municipal court, right? So we, we, we understand that, let's say you get into trouble, you go to court here in Lee County, you don't like that decision, you appeal it, it goes to a, a district court or a circuit court, you don't like that, so it goes to a federal court, you don't like that, it goes all the way to the Supreme Court. After the Supreme Court, where else is there to go? There's nowhere to go. This is the top of the chain. That's all that exists. We have a, a Bible that exists for us as the Supreme Court. There is no higher authority for you and me as the church. There is nothing else we can appeal to. Ultimately, the scriptures are what is ultimate as it pertains to how we function as a church. So if God and his word are the Supreme Court then what we see that is that the congregation, you as the members, are the final court of appeals before we get to Scripture. As it pertains to the local church, you are the final court of appeals on earth, not the pastors. We believe in what is called the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. We get this language from 1 Peter chapter 2, that we're all a, a, a nation of priests, a royal priesthood. Every Christian is a priest of God. Now, what does that mean? In the Old Testament, there was a divide between the people of Israel and the leaders when it came to a relationship with God. So priests would bring you through your sacrifice into God's presence, right? They would stand before you as mediators. They would stand before you as the only way you can get to God. And it's through taking your sacrifice and sacrificing it on your behalf that you could be made right with God. That's the old covenant. But in the new covenant, like we said earlier, Christ is our perfect priest. We have a perfect mediator in Jesus. He stood between God and us and made us right with him by his sacrifice. So since we are in Christ as believers, we now enjoy the role of priest, of standing before God on our own and offering ourselves, Romans 12, as a living sacrifice. You and I are now priests of God in Christ. Now then, as the church, believers together have this priestly responsibility to bring the things of the people before God. So you and I have the responsibility of bringing 
ourselves and our problems and our, our things that we have going on, our dealings before the Lord. So that means that the affairs of the church are ultimately affirmed on earth by the priesthood, by you and me. So a great example of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's turn there just very quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As you're turning there, I'll just give you the, the synopsis. There was a, an instance of terrible, heinous sin. Man was having inappropriate relations with his mother-in-law. And it was a kind of sexual sin that even the pagans did not approve of. And yet in the church in Corinth, they were minimizing it, saying that it was okay, saying that it was not a big deal, that it wasn't worth dealing with as a sin in the church. And Paul is shocked. He's shocked because the body of believers ought to maintain purity and holiness as the church. So in verse 4, look at 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4. This is what he says to do. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul says you need to excommunicate this guy. You need to remove him from your membership. You cannot affirm if he continues in unrepentant sin that he has the spirit of God within him. But when do you do this? When you are assembled. So church in Corinth, gather together as the church and make this decision. I approve it as the Apostle Paul. I approve it. You deliver this man over to Satan. You remove him from your membership. So the congregation rules here. We are the ones who decide what happens. We are the ones who have the final authority on earth before Scripture. And again, in 1 Corinthians 6, just next chapter over, Paul is saddened that the church was going to Corinthian lawyers, these unchristian pagan lawyers, to settle disputes between believers in the church. So they were having problems within the church, and they were going to people who didn't know Jesus to try to fix their problems. And Paul was saying, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you give up your responsibility to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace by going to those who don't know Jesus? So look at what he says starting in verse 2. He says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such, have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Paul is saying, church in Corinth, you have been given the responsibility to rule. Don't abdicate this responsibility. Don't give it out to a pagan lawyer. Don't neglect it when there's clear sin among you. Rule. Use and exercise the authority that you've been given as the people of God. Don't give up this great gift. The congregation has the final say in this world as it pertains to their church. Now, we do this as a church formally through things like voting. So, who are the pastors who lead the church? You decide through your vote. How much money should we budget the next year? You decide through your vote. Who are the new deacons that will serve the church for the next three years? Well, you decide through your vote. 
How many people on this list that we have on business meetings should we add to the membership of our church that we recognize are Christians and are coming in with a good understanding of their doctrine and a great confidence in their commitment to uphold this covenant? You decide through your vote. You vote on new members. How about people who are going to get baptized? that we recognize that God has done a work in their life and we want to affirm them through the, the spiritual church ordinance of baptism. Will you decide, as the church, you vote on these things. The congregation decides all of it. Now, practically, practically, there is a kind of trust and stewardship that the congregation gives to pastors. So you don't necessarily look over my shoulder and see how we spend every cent. Like, I don't need to go and say, hey, uh, can the church uh, vote that I go take one of our Sunday school teachers out to lunch to talk about his family? There's a kind of stewardship that exists. You say, we we trust that these pastors are going to make wise decisions about their money and their time and their relationships. That's why we install them as pastors. That's why we voted to affirm them. But at the end of the day, the members have the final say about the things that really matter structurally to the the importance of this church. You decide. This is why, students, please hear me on this. This is why regenerate church membership is so important. It's why having a membership of Christians in your church who confidently love Christ and live their lives as believers is why it is so important. It's why many churches in our country struggle because their membership roles are full of people who are not Christians. How can that church be led by the Spirit to make decisions pertaining to itself when the majority of their membership don't know Jesus? They don't even recognize the Spirit, and yet they now lead the church. We will not be led by the Spirit, and we will not be sensitive to God's Word, and we will not have the Lord's glory as our main aim if our membership is not accurate. If it's not accurate to those who love the gospel, who actually are in the body of Christ. We see that church authority balances between three spheres, right? We've talked about them. The the authority of the Lord Jesus, His ultimate lordship, the authority of the elders to lead and to guide, and the authority of the congregation to rule in all things final. While God has surely used churches who organize themselves differently, remember, there are great churches, even in our community. There are great Presbyterian churches. There are great Anglican churches. There are great Methodist churches. They look different. They're structured different. God has blessed them, but structure matters. And we should want to aim to be as biblical as possible as we think about how it is that we function as the church. So my hope for you, my prayer for you today, is that you would see a couple of things. First, that you would see that Christ really is Lord. He really is Lord over all. Second, I hope that you would see that there is a great need for you to pray for your pastors. We have a lot of responsibility. I'm near the bottom of that totem pole. And there are so many things happening in the life of our church. There are so many things, good things, wonderful things, as well as very hard and difficult things. Pray for your pastors to have wise leadership and wise judgment to know what's best. And thirdly, I pray that you would be encouraged, but also feel the responsibility of your role as the congregation. You matter. 
because you rule. Your voice as the congregation is the final voice underneath Scripture. So don't think, oh, I'm just a member. Like, I don't have any importance. Like, there's nothing for me to do. No. See your role as valuable as a member of this body, as a member of this family of God. Let's pray together. God in heaven, I I pray that in the next couple of minutes that we would just uh, take some time to discuss the importance of church structure. God, that we as a congregational church recognize we all have direct access to you. We don't need a priest any longer as members of the new covenant. We recognize that this church is autonomous. We are independent. We make our own decisions. And there's something God glorifying about that. And thirdly, God, I pray that we would see the importance of our role as members to rule over the affairs of the church through your authority. We pray, God, for the conversations that will happen in the next couple of minutes, that even as though we're, we're teenagers and it doesn't seem like this is super important or, or very practical in the, in the moment, I pray that this, this truth, this biblical truth, would, would, would encourage us and spur us on to faithfulness for the rest of our lives. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.